we use Tally for, for every one of our clients. So how many tax returns do you guys do in a typical year? Uh, I think we did 500 this year. Before there is this Tally 4, how did you guys handle this? Uh, yeah, before it was super messy. We did not have, as we've, we've grown a lot over the past four years, so like our work paper standardization needed some help, which Tally 4 has definitely helped out a lot with because it forces everything in, into one standard work paper that we then use as the work papers. But before we were just using Excel. We were just using QBO and we would export you know, the two years of P&L, the two years of balance sheet. That was what we would use for our work papers. I don't know, it probably saves at least an hour per return. And then just for tax prep, and if we're doing tax projections for clients and we actually need to get the K-1, like get an idea of what the K-1 is gonna look like, then we also use it for the projections. Yeah, well, that's huge too. Some of the bullets under the tax hero section of Tally 4, automate your book to tax, deliver tax returns faster, minimize extensions, reduce staff turnover, focus on tax strategy, right? Tell us what that means to you, Shane. The more time we spend on moving one expense or like aggregating 10 expenses into the legal line or into the accounting line or into the other deductions, like that's just a waste of time, frankly. So Tally4 really cuts down on the administrative preparer's job of aggregating various general ledger items into one line on a tax return so that we can focus more on how much can we put into your 401k this year? Like, what is the R&D tax credit going to look like? How much cash do we just need to have on hand on March 15th and April 15th of 2023 or next year, whatever, so that our clients who we all have like a deeper relationship with can decide on whether or not how much house they can afford or if they're going to bring on a new business partner, things that actually add more value. Focus on that people part because it's the health, it's the wellness. Like it's counterintuitive that during tax season, you should make your team have a, have a holiday. No one can sustain that mental performance. If you want optimum performance... Get them to work four days. Okay. Have a long weekend. Like during tax season, yes, don't get them to work 16-hour days. They're not going to be as effective. The four-day work week, shout out to Tim Ferriss. That's yeah. A, that's a book that's four still hour. popular. No, it's four, four, his hour. is four oh, hours. Oh, yeah. <laughs> four yeah, hours. Four hours, yeah. dog. Yeah. Yeah. He took we... it a long way further. May I have your attention, please? Don't be tardy to the Coach McKenzie party. That's right, you're listening to Varsity Tips, formerly known as Nick's Tips with Scott and Nicole, where they sit down and discuss a hot topic to get Nick's hot takes and tips. It's the same show you've grown to know and love. We're just calling it something new to fit the curriculum here at Accounting High. So lace up your sneaks and stretch out because Varsity Tips is now in session. I repeat, may I have your attention please? This is another public service announcement brought to you in part by Accounting High. The views and events expressed here are of the next generation of accounting and tech professionals leading this space. The events and suggestions are not to be taken lightly. Children should not partake in the listening of this podcast. Anything else? Yeah. So without further ado, introducing the star of our show, Nick's McKenzie and Scott Scarano. We're going to have a problem here. Today on the podcast, we have Nick Sinclair. Welcome, Nick. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, so up, Nick? Nick and I met, was that four years ago in San Diego? This episode is Nick's tips because mm. it's Nick and Nick's. <laughs> 
That's this episode. So Nick, you're going to give us a bunch of tips today. Nicole's going to yes. leave with the Nick's questions. Nick's got way more tips than this. Nick's with Nick because Nick has the extra C, so there's more tips. Yeah, you got, you got one. You got at least one extra. <laughs> and it's Nick's. If we spelled your name and last initial, it says Nick's. <laughs> That's, this is easy. <laughs> so, so Nick, tell us about yourself. So I owned a financial planning and accounting business for over 12 years. Absolutely loved it. And then I stumbled into what I do today, which is the offshoring and building global teams by just going to the Philippines for a entrepreneurs organization board retreat and um, sort of stumbled across outsourcing, built my own back office. And then other firms wanted to not set up like we did, but more use our offices and, and our structure. And fast forward nine years with 2,800 plus staff putting on about 150, 170 team members a month and it's now wow. my full-time business. So yeah, got out of the accounting and financial planning and advice and now Talk just about do this. Growth. Yeah, it's been, That's funny. Wow. So I, I recently joined EO in San Francisco. Um, so how many countries are you guys supporting? Uh, so at the moment we support nine countries. Yeah, nine. We've got offices in six at the moment. So, Are you spending your time mostly in the Philippines or in Australia these days? I, I mean, first three years I spent, or first four years of the business, I spent almost every second week in the Philippines. And then the last four and a half, five years, or well, obviously COVID, I couldn't go anywhere. Yeah. But outside of that, I've been spending most of my time in North America, um, to be honest. Oh, really? Yeah, that's a big part of where our expansion is. So I was spending a lot of time pre-COVID and then post-COVID, that's where I'll probably spend a lot more of my time. What percentage would you say of your client base is in North America? Uh, At the moment, it's 35%. So we've only really been there for four or five years, but within two years, we think we'll be uh, more North American than we are Australia and New Zealand. Well, last time we caught up, you said that the size of Texas is bigger than the entire continent. If you look at Texas, it's got more accounting firms in Australia. If you look at California, it's got more accounting firms than Australia. So the US is 10 times the size of the Australian accounting market. And then you've got Canada, which is you know, roughly 20, 25% bigger than the Australian market as well. So yeah. it's just significantly bigger. And do you find the crossover, obviously, I think of the nine countries, they're all predominantly English speaking. Yes, all but one. All but one. What's the one that doesn't? Uh, they're Spanish speaking. Yeah, we are looking at South America. It is a, an interesting market that's evolving. You said you, you're onboarding 150 staff a month? Well, I'm not, but the team. You're not. (laughs) (laughs) How many of those staff do you actually ever meet? Uh, Look, I try to meet them all at least once a year. I do go there a couple of times a year and just basically floor walk. I'm pretty active on social media. Everyone that joins our company, I um, will connect with them on LinkedIn and try and have a conversation. It is hard. I mean, within our business, we have 370 support team members that are working for all the team members that work with the clients. So if you want to call it 2,400 team members work for clients and 370 work for us helping serve them. So I have a lot more interaction with those 370 than I do with the 2,400 working with clients. But in saying that, I do try to make an effort, but it is hard. Like when you've got 
so many people. It's it's like walking around a school. Like I walk around my kids' school and <laughs> it's we got, yeah, we got yeah. more employees than the school does. So you walk around and go, well, it's impossible to know everyone. You know faces and you know you know names, but it is hard to have a relationship with all of them. It's more just the team that I work with more day to day that I have a, a deeper relationship with. And where are you finding hmm. your staff? Look, I think in the Philippines, we're lucky. We get over 3,000 applications a month. So there's no shortage of talent. It's a matter of getting the best of the best um, is yeah. probably the, the way to say it. So our, our talent team, which are amazing, obviously manage that process and, and filter them down to get only the, I suppose, the top ones put for declines. But there's no shortage of, of accounting over there. We are exploring other markets as well. We've got a presence in South Africa and we're looking to expand that more. So... Again, there's no shortage of, of strong talent there. And I think that's the good thing. So accounting is a universal language. That's why you're able to go across borders because at the end of the day, the work that they're doing, is it very similar across countries? Yeah, look, I mean, audits, audit to a degree. It just varies amongst countries. Tax and compliance does vary, but you can teach that and we've set up a training business. I always talk about speed to competency or speed to success. How quick can we get someone that is not trained in that region up to success so that they can function in that region if it's a tax role? Bookkeeping is probably one of the easy ones to spin up because it is debits and credits. It's not so much the tax part. You can teach the tax part, but management accountants quite, it's universal. So that's one of the benefits, I suppose, of, of this global world that we do have now, it's probably more opened up in people's eyes now that it's a matter of where can you get the best talent globally. Um, yeah. It's no longer about just local. And, and this is a point that a lot of people think, oh, we're taking money away or we're taking roles away. But uh, every single, you could say 90% of our clients, probably 95% of our clients have grown their local team while also growing their, like an offshore team. So it's not replacing roles. It's actually, it's helping them get talent that they need to deal with the capacity of God. Yeah. Well, you've got over 3,000 people applying a month. So you're giving a lot of jobs. That's not to be discounted either. I understand a highly localized mindset of taking our jobs from our people, but the world is flat. Oh, look, we pay tax in many countries, which <laughs> we contribute in a good way, which I, I always see that as a good thing. I mean, we invoice out of the US, so the US get their part of it before it goes to the Philippines. Okay. But it is, I mean, it's a great thing. It is It is creating a, an environment globally where people are getting roles and it's lifting everyone up, not just set countries. So Nick, I know before COVID, you guys had physical offices, right? And that was part of your selling point was that everything's secure they show up they leave all their i think they even left their phone right at the door all the employees yeah, they got they came mockers, in. so they can't go into production areas with any equipment um it is basically work area it's and then we have so a floor plan of our office would be call it two and a half thousand square meters and 30 percent of that is product is non-productive so that's where our cafes are our medical clinics our breakout areas the lockers chill out zones so yeah it's very secure in that you leave all of that outside when you're inside you're working so how did that how did you manage covid it was looked to be challenging <laughs> it was challenging the the philippines government gave us six hours to move at that time we only had around 1200 team members but literally Wait, six hours yeah they're they're good 
Well, they gave us a week's notice to get everyone back into the office. So they gave us a bit more time to come back. But look, they gave us six hours notice. They ended up extending it. We had people, and that was at seven o'clock at night. They, they gave the notice to basically say that by midnight, basically, we're shutting everything. You can't leave your house. So we had to get everyone in the office, get them off the network, get their computers out, sign everything out. It was, our team worked basically 24 hours straight. We didn't meet the deadline, but they allowed us to continue to, to get everyone out safely and back home. And yeah, it was a challenge, but that was a big challenge, I suppose, during COVID because we were used to working in office. Our security and infrastructure was set up largely for that. We did have some remote team members, so we run corporate what i call corporate security so it's layers of security that you just don't see in small business so we had to pivot we had to basically still have that level of it they were using all of our equipment so they still had no usbs they still had none of that we had we were running i suppose in the backgrounds on the software we can manage ins and outs of the software so we don't see what's being done but if there's a significant amount of activity we can see that which then triggers and alerts our it so Look, it was a challenge, but I think it was globally. Everyone just had to adapt whether you liked it or not. It was what it was. Yeah. And even in the US, regardless of where you are, you have to be mindful of security and someone can rip you off in any place. So if mm-hmm. anything, you guys are probably doing more than most Look, we were, firms are doing yes. in the US. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen anyone come close to what we do. And, and that was yeah. the thing. It wasn't our first rodeo. Like we'd done it many times. We were able to pivot and get everyone off and got a big IT team so they were stretched but we got it done and then we just continued as it went on because as we know no one knew how long it would go like I, I my initial thing was can't go that long a couple of months you know, <laughs> and, but as have, it evolved we had to says two it. years later yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> have you seen the people's outlook on outsourcing change over the last five years to be honest we've never been busier so yeah. the last two years. Well, you say the last five years, Nicole, but I think it's it's got to be post-COVID that people's yeah. mindset really shift. Yeah, I think for Australia, they were quite evolved with it. The market, for example, pre-COVID was around 30% of accounting firms outsourced. Post-COVID, it's over 50% now. But if you look at, particularly we noticed in North America, because there was a lot of what I call traditional firms where you've got to be in office, we deal with clients that are around the corner, but that, and you know, they weren't traditionally, the cloud adoption wasn't as high in, in North America. And we've just seen that absolutely go now. People are now open to go, well, during COVID, it didn't matter where our team was sitting. And a lot of people moved from the, the state that they were living into to a more tax effective one or yeah. COVID policy one. Or So we saw that predominantly in North America. What we also saw was probably the, the second and the third tier firms that always were able to get graduates, but they largely fed off the big, the big four, the big 10 firms, really struggled. That talent pool stopped. So they really struggled and they were coming to us saying, look, we just can't get people. So there was always a talent shortage in accounting, even pre-COVID. And that was where markets were good. And, and now it's, it's bad. And for me, I think the talent shortage problem is actually two to three years away. It's not now. Like people are feeling it now, but I actually think it's, it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. And the logic around that is if you look at the immigration numbers going into most Western countries, which supplemented a lot of the accounting roles, that was quite significant pre-COVID. And obviously during COVID, all the borders were locked. So it caused this huge shortfall of talent. Then you've got on top of that, if you look at the actual statistics of people going into education in accounting, particularly Australia, 
America, Canada, UK, it's actually been declining by, for over 20 years, the number of people going in. If you look at the Australian stats, it was propped up by international students coming to Australia to study accounting. So if you look at the actual accounting stats, it looked like there was people, like it was growing year on year, but they're all international students and a large amount in Australia were from China. So you take out those two factors, less people are studying, less immigration coming in, there's now a big shortfall. Not as many people started studying in the last two years than they have in the years before that in accounting. So that's where that shortage is going to come in two to three years' time. And immigration's only starting to get back up and running again, and they can't just open the doors and let too many in each country because they just wouldn't be able to deal with it initially. So, yeah, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better, but I think good firms still can always find good talent. Well, no, no, that, that kind of brings up the point, though. How about in the Philippines? Are there more people going into accounting in those universities uh probably the numbers like when i spoke to one of the major universities in the philippines a couple of months ago their numbers did drop so their number of students graduating now is the same as it was pre-covid and that's what they were highlighting to us but when i really challenged them on how many have gone in during covid like uh, compared to normal enrollments it was 40 percent down Wow. So, but insane overall across the board, or is it yeah. because most people didn't didn't apply anyway to university? Yeah, well, they, I think during COVID, yeah, you just didn't have as many going through. You also had all the CPA exams basically put on hold for eighteen months mm-hmm. in the Philippines, so you don't have the CPAs finishing. So they might have finished their uni, but they the fourth year in in the Philippines is actually the CPA programs built into it. So they technically that got dragged out. But in saying that, you've got hundreds and hundreds of thousands of accountants working in market and you've still got, on a good year, you're getting 25 to 30,000 accountants graduate a year in the Philippines. So even at 40% less, there's still a lot of talent coming out. So all the employees that you're hiring, are they coming from big four? Are they coming from another industry? It's an interesting one, the Philippines market. So EY has the market. So they have six and a half, seven thousand accountants. As the largest employer in the Philippines, they do over 50% of the audits, I think, on on their stock market. That was the last numbers I looked at a while ago. And then if you look at the next, the second firm, number two, we're bigger than them. So the second, third, and fourth tier firms have got, they've probably now got close to that 1,500 staff, but there's a big, like there's EY, and then there's like two, three, and four. Oh, wow. There's a huge, huge gap. There's a big difference. And so we probably sit in number two from an employer in the Philippines of accountants. We're the second largest, but we're the only non, I suppose, accounting firm, traditional firm. Uh, we are obviously an international provider of talent. So yeah. it is interesting. They didn't see us coming. I went to, I was actually a few years ago on a PICPA, so the CPA program. I was at their conference on stage with, five, I think there's 5,000 people there. It was like crazy. It was like a football field of people. And the EY chairman was next to me for the Philippines and and I was speaking and at the end of it, we walked off stage. He goes, I'd never heard of you. He goes, but I knew our talent was going somewhere after two years and now I know where. Oh, wow. Hey, they, they're your fishing hole. Uh, well, I mean, their model over there is they take 50% of the CPA board passes every year in the Philippines, EY do. And they pretty much work them for two years. I won't say what, mm-hmm. how they work them, but they do work them. And after two years, they, a large amount of them leave and, unless they're going through to leadership. So yeah. they do have a – and they've. I met with one of their partners off the record and he said, look, our, our 
things two to three years is what we want to get out of them. We're happy if they move on because they're cost effective and they're productive at that stage. We can't have 7,000 high, high expense people. So wow. it works well for yeah, us. So you take them on their graduate almost. Well, like they graduated from EY school. Basically. Yeah. yeah. How about your churn? About what, what do you guys have as far as churn? You're hiring a lot, but yeah. you're losing a lot. Look, it's around the international standard. COVID's been interesting. The last couple of months has been we have had a spike because we returned to office. So we did see a spike, but we've seen no shortage in replacing them is probably the positive thing. I think when it comes to churn, we, we do, our team members become highly trained and highly skilled. So even in like our training business trains them so that they can become an EA in, in America, so that they can become a CPA in America. They can do tax. They can do tax. Yeah. Like they become highly skilled people. So the routes for them is that they either go and freelance or another BPO that has significantly less amount of accounting clients will get an accounting client and pay them 30, 40, 50% more. And I actually had it out with another BPO owner a couple of years ago, about four years ago. It was a very heated conversation. I said, look, you can't just pay 40, 50% above market. Like we do industry benchmarking. We have a benchmark report on what salaries are in the Philippines, both with us and outside of us. We do a huge report on this. And, and he said, look, the client has no idea. They just want someone that can do the tax work because they don't, they need someone. So, and it's still a lot cheaper than where it is in America or Australia. And I'm like, that's not the right thing to do by the client making them pay significantly more than market without them knowing. I said, it's a right. short-term approach. All that will do is push up salaries. So we do lose mm -hmm. people, but I put that on us. It's, it's our fault if we lose a team member because we're not doing enough to keep them with us. And sometimes it's pay. Sometimes the thing with the Philippines is 20% of their GDP is from overseas foreign workers. So that's Filipinos leaving the country to go and work overseas earn oh, international wow. money and send it back to the Philippines. So it's 20% of their GDP. It's huge. So we do have um, team members that will leave and go and work, for example, if they've been working with us for four or five years in with an American client, they might move to America. And then they're getting, you know, instead of getting 40,000, we call it 40,000 US or 20 to 40,000 US, they'll go to the US and earn 80 to 120,000. Mm. And then they can send it back to the family in the Philippines. So... We do have that, but then we do try and transition them to go to their client. But in some cases, they'll go to Abu Dhabi or, or countries like that where they can, in essence, get paid quite well, live really cheaply and send all the money back to the family. So effectively, if you adjusted that 30% number, you say 30% of their income or 20%? Of, of the income of Philippines is coming in from oh, working. 20% of the GDP. Change GDP. If you adjusted that for people working in BPO and working for places like you, because that effectively is, they're working for someone else, somewhere else, hmm. and the money's coming in there. I mean, isn't that the same thing? Yeah. Look, if you look at the BPO industry as a whole, it's about 20, another 20% of the GDP. So that could be 40%. Yeah, it is and, significant. Yeah. And so my, my other question is, at what point does... Does their wages get corrected or are like, you know, if, if it's a 40 to 80 ratio, it's basically half or about for the equivalent of a person that they're basically getting trained up, they're working for BPO and they're good enough. They could go to the U S and make double just because they're on our borders and on our soil. Is that the only difference? Pretty much to be honest, like one of our U S clients has 
call it 10 managers in their accounting firm. Five of them are in the Philippines and they've got US people reporting to them. So they are mm. just as confident. I think that it's a hard conversation. A friend of mine is big into remote workforces and she's into this, I suppose, push around. It doesn't matter where you live, you get paid the same globally, but it is a hard one because you look at cost of living where they are is very different. So it's like when you live in America, it's more expensive to live. I think you also look on the flip side of a lot of- it makes me want to leave America almost. Oh, um, I could get paid the exactly the same and move somewhere else. And it's a lot cheaper. It is. Well, they have an, that. As an employer too, there's so many, especially in California, the employment law is ridiculous. Yeah. Sometimes I get so frustrated with it where I'm like, I'm going to hire another state or I'm going to hire out of the country because I have so much liability as an employer in California and people cost oh, more. God. And so by creating, I know that they're trying to protect the employee and I get that. But at the same time, what's happening is more and more people are going to start outsourcing because they don't want that liability anymore. And I think that's the thing. Yeah, labor laws in the Philippines are very similar to... California, where people use us, we manage, and that's our burden. Not, you're doing all yeah, of that. You're handling yeah, all of that. That's your burden. Um, yeah. <laughs> you're getting the law. You're getting sued. Yeah. And I think, Scott, <laughs> if you go back to that point of if they all came back to the Philippines, sort of agree, a lot of the roles that a lot of that are overseas foreign workers that do leave the Philippines are in nursing and they are in where they work on big, large ships. So they've got a large sailing and captains, and they're quite skilled in that. So a lot of the labor that does go is in those industries and accountants probably four or five on the list of, of roles that do, does go over. I think the bigger challenge is that I don't agree that where you live, like if you are a Filipino living in the Philippines, that's where you should get paid. It shouldn't be the country that you work for because I think that you would then have significant disparity between obviously if you lived in the Philippines on American weight, you'd be living like a king. Like you'd have 15 cooks, you'd have 12 cleaners, you'd have because the local people there on their salaries have their own cooks, they have their own cleaners, they have what they call yaya. So they're already living a good lifestyle in a lot of cases. There are the ones that aren't. There are the lower economic people that aren't. But I think it's relative to where you live. And I think like an Australian couldn't come and live in America on an Australian salary because it's 30% less. Like we just couldn't afford to. So yeah. I think that's one of the challenges. But there's a lot of push for that to say, oh, well, doesn't matter because their competency is the same. Why shouldn't they get paid the same? On the flip side is. Or why shouldn't American get paid less if they move out of America and go somewhere else? Because we're stupid here. I swear <laughs> we are not very smart. The more and more people I meet outside of our country, the more stupid I feel. Maybe that maybe right. that's saying for the people you're meeting. <laughs> maybe they're just smart. Maybe. What are you surrounding yourself with? Yeah. Yeah. The part of so part of it is like scoping out and thinking. All right, this is going to sound like an off-the-wall question, but what makes a house a home? I did ask this question to my team recently, and we came up with some core answers. If somebody were to ask you this, what makes a house a home? In the context of personal life? like what? Sure, yeah. sure. So yeah. For me, it's family, and it's, that's probably the big one. It's the link of, I think that sort of links to why people won't, won't move around the world as much because it's that deep connection with your family. If that whole support network of mine is, you know, on the Gold Coast in Australia. So if I was to move away and live on an island in the Philippines for six months and in the snow for six months, I wouldn't have that support network. And I think the other part of it is 
it's the kids and their education being able giving them that stability so a lot of people say people some people say they're plants some people say they're pets and some people say the place that they're in the environment places so the environment and where you are makes your home your home so it it really does depend on where you physically are Hmm. so you're paying for your environment like california physically is a nicer place to be the weather is beautiful and it it should be the most expensive place to live because it's clean it's beautiful it's nice and you go across the border to mexico dirty so the taxes and everything else, generally speaking, are because of where you physically are. Depends on whether you're on a secondment too. Like we see that, like if you look at the Philippines has a lot of Americans. It was a territory of America for 49 years. So there's a lot of Americans living in the Philippines, running these outsourcing companies and different companies there. They, and are they making the money? Well, they typically are getting not their normal American wage. They're normally getting 20 to 30% accelerator on top of that for living there, plus the schooling for their kids paid for, plus their housing. Like they are getting paid more, but that is because of the reality of it is, is you're moving to a developing country to go and help that company do what they do. So they get a bonus, I suppose, incentive being an accelerated salary and and everything else given to them. So yeah, it's that's normally the challenge though, is when they go there and get stupid money to be Yeah, there. there's some really wealthy areas in the Philippines. Oh, look, communities. to be honest, there's places there that I haven't seen a nicer place in America or Australia. Uh-huh. Like some of the places there, it is crazy. Like it's just like being in America or Australia. Have you considered living there? Uh, I have many times over the years. I'm divorced and I have my kids every second week. So that uh, is what stops me from, from even family. I'm, I'm tired here because of the kids, but when the kids... Uh, out of school, I would probably be more of a global citizen. Just there's a few countries I'd live between between America, Canada, Philippines. I love the snow, so anywhere there's snow, Japan. I've never met an Australian that loves the snow. Well, they yeah. love it because they're not in it, though. We, right? yeah, it's yeah. hard. Our snow sucks. Like <laughs> our snow's not real <laughs> snow. Melty, watery. Uh, yeah, it's, it's not. No, you know. we. Yeah, you get more in a night than we get in a season. So. <laughs> I was playing Aussie right. rules on Sunday and I dislocated my finger for the first time. So that was Ooh, fun. That's right. First time you're getting brittle on the cold. Well, I've, I've, uh, I mean, I've jammed like every finger, but I never actually dislocated it. But when my teammates just popped it back into place. Was it just hanging there? It wasn't, it wasn't, it didn't go sideways. It went, it like crunched, like overlapped it. Oh. And then she just crunched it back into place. Very Australian sport, old AFL. Yeah. Yes, oh, yeah. wow, I played. Yeah. I started playing Gaelic, so I went from my Gaelic game, which is an Irish sport, to. I remember Aussie talking rules. to you, and that was one of the things I was like, "Hang on, you play footy?" <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm going to retire soon, though. Oh, you're getting too old, are you? Getting she's too old. I'm one of the. I'm the old lady yeah. now. <laughs> they need that yeah. guidance. She's got a lot of trophies. Yeah. How many? How many championships, Nicole? Five. Five. Five times. Five rings. That's like as many as Michael Jordan. All right. I think he's got six. All right. So, Nicole, I took this off the tracks. Let's, let's, no, you didn't. That was good. Um, I, so I want to talk about when you're building a team that quickly, how are you keeping the culture? How are you creating processes and onboarding and all of that? Do you, how, how close are you? Have you built all that and you've exited now? Or are you still involved in that? I work mainly with our CEO and the exec team and I mentor a bunch of people in the business. So I don't 
day-to-day operationally. I don't have a lot of involvement in those projects. Um, I do more innovation projects, like we build a seven-week training program for new team members. It's, look, I love that stuff. I think it's when you're scaling, it's hard because people don't always keep up with growth and not everyone's built for growth. Um, but I think if you look at the playbook of businesses at scale that have got good cultures, it's in the DNA and that's the big part we focus on is vision, mission, how do we get them drinking the Toa Kool-Aid, if that's the word? <laughs> we want them bought Swag. into. Yeah, we want them bought mm-hmm. into what we're doing and where we're going. And I think we attract a lot of talent for the opportunity of what they can come and develop with us because we are fast growing. And I always ask any new leader or even anyone that starts in any of Australia or US, like, why do you join us? And a lot of them, it is that purpose, but it's also... We want to be part of something to say we were part of that journey. We were, my DNA is in that. So we get people that are entrepreneurial thinking is probably one way. They're growth focused as opposed to, I just want to go and do this role and I want to sit in this role for the next 10 years and I don't like growth. I don't like change. I mean, we've got technology team of 28 people. We've got business analysts that basically just map process and then we automate as much as we can. We're very focused on getting people to do the work of value that they should be doing as opposed to work that technology can do, but we just haven't implemented it. And I think that's the big thing for me is lifting everyone up the value chain to do what we call meaningful work. Mm-hmm. Because if you're doing something repetitively and technology can automate it, why would you let your team members do that? Why would you not give them more meaningful work? And more meaningful can mean many things. Like we've got a data team. I call them the data nerds. They sit in this data lake and all they do is data all day, every day. And they're data architects. I don't fully get what they do, but they're like, they're number, they just sit there in that world. But for them, that's fully exciting to be able to do predictive analysis and AI and all this. That is meaningful work for them. For me, I'd hate it, but that's not what my role is. So I think with us, we just try and look at everyone doing meaningful work that links back to the greater vision. I think growth helps with culture to be honest you know when i've had other businesses that haven't grown as fast cultures still can be good it's more purposeful but when you're growing there's always things happening there's always things to celebrate and exciting things coming so you're always sort of buying into that but at the end of the day culture is a big i call an academic word i think culture is a process at the end of the day culture is about implementing things that you purposely do to make your team feel valued and and focused on them. So how much time does your team spend internally doing things like that to build culture versus working with their firm in America, right? Because it's important that they also fit in with the culture of the firm they're working for because that's who they're working with most of the time. So how do you balance those two things? Because you have Toa's culture on one hand and then you have the firm that they're working for on another yeah, hand. Yeah, it's a challenge. I always relate it back to like it's having a separated parents. It's like having a mum and dad because you know, <laughs> they'll go to mum sometimes, they'll go to dad. Look, we try and make them feel part of the Toa culture. So in the Philippines that they feel part of our where we are and our DNA, but ultimately they're working with their client and that is who they should feel really part of. So we do a lot of culture events, sports fests. I call them community things. We get them bought into the Toa community in the Philippines. So we have free lunches on Fridays. We have sports mm-hmm. festivals. We have team building days. Free lunch Fridays. I want to join. We do a bunch of <laughs> we do a bunch of things, but a lot of it is traditionally in lunch or after hours. Even our a lot of what we do is coach our clients on how to build a culture with a remote team. 
because ultimately we want our team member to feel part of their team. That's who their client is. They're, we're just the ones providing everything to make that magic happen. So we really double down because, you know, a lot of accounting firms are so busy, they don't have time to really think about, I need to be purposeful on my culture. I need to teach one of the sessions I did at a roadshow in Australia a couple of months ago to our Australian clients was talking about the work that accountants do. You know, I look at a lot of job ads globally on, you know, you're going to be doing P&Ls, you're going to be doing tax returns, you're going to be doing all these things, which sounds real. It's boring. Like that's just a ticket to the game. What I want to know about (laughs) is what's your firm's purpose? What impact do you make to the small businesses? And I think accountants aren't great at telling stories. And I think the story is, is that the work that accountants do every day is having an impact on a small business or a medium business that has an impact on a local community. I mean, that's who those small businesses serve. Is they're a cafe, they're serving coffees and they're having an impact on helping people get ready for work. Like I think we just don't package up the the work that accountants do and how valuable it is. And, and that's really where we try to, I suppose, teach our clients to talk about purpose and mission and what why you do what you do every day, because that will give people chills and people want to work for a firm like that as opposed to come here, you do tax returns and hope you stay. So what is the average size firm that works with you guys? Yeah, look, I think we deal with the number eight firm in America, which is 5,000 staff, $1.5 billion right through to sole practitioners. So we deal with everything in between. We don't have one, I suppose, size client that is better, but if you look at the average size of an accounting firm globally is two to three partners and up to 20 staff. That's the typical, I call it mid-size accounting firm. It's not really a mid-size, but that's sort of the sweet spot where a lot of our clients are. But pre that was pre-COVID. Post-COVID, it's, it's a lot of the firms that have got 20 plus are the ones coming to us now because they're the ones that just can't find talent. But Do you have a defined persona, like a type of client that you're marketing to? Yeah, look, it's always been initially... Particularly in America, when it was initial, it was the innovative firms. It was traditionally cloud-based. It was mm-hmm. firms that are people-focused. It was firms that were focused on all- people-focused. Yeah, like that's people progressively matter people matter most. <laughs> yeah, and if you're people-focused, then you're focused on your people. Are they as focused on their overseas people or their outside people? Yeah, and I think that's the thing we we've had to teach a lot of people is that particularly with global teams where people haven't managed a remote team before, I think COVID's helped us with that because now everyone has. Yeah. But we don't want firms that treat their team members like a commodity. People are your biggest asset. At like the end AI. Of the day. Other people go, oh, you know, it's just the sweatshop or low cost labor. I mean, they're humans at the end of the day. They're no different to you and I. They just live in a different country. And yeah. they want a career much like any one of your other team members do. So it's about if you're not willing to invest in helping them to build a career, you just want to give them a job, it's, they're not going to stick around. Turnover will be too high. It makes our job twice as hard because we've got to recruit and replace. So we do want firms that are people-focused, that recognize that we're a service-based business and, and we're human-driven. And no matter how much technology automates what we do, we are a human-based service business. And that will never change. It's just the work that we do will change. Well, I can speak to my experience. I have been working with my VA a lot lately, and he's my friend, and he's in Philippines. There isn't any difference between that and, and somebody that could be miles down the road. 
Yeah, 100% agree. I mean, I looked when I had my accounting firm in Australia, I had 12 people in it and 11 were non-Australians. They weren't born in Australia, 11 of them were. We're multicultural, diverse teams these days. So, look, I think the human part's the fun part. I think that's where, you know, our biggest challenges are people. People have emotions. Mm -hmm. Um, Not always logical. People are complex. Yes. Yeah. But, you know, that's also the flip side is once you understand that and I think it's like if you look at sporting and and you've won five championships, you know what high-performing teams are. Like I think too many people don't treat their businesses like sport. They don't look at performance. Like I always say accountants want to get great output by account by their team members, but they give them like a flat soccer ball or a flat footy. Go and be the best you can, but I'm going to make you do data entry when there's software like Dext or HubSpot or why would yeah. you do something when tech can do it? Like you're giving your team like a flat football to go and play on the professional stage with. It's you got to treat it. And it's also like human performance. Like a lot of what we look at is how do we get speed to competency, speed to success, most output. Like it's all human performance. People need to be, you know, you need to focus on that people part because it's the health, it's the wellness, it's making sure they have a break. Like it's counterintuitive that during tax season, you should make your team have a, you know, have a holiday. Like, well, hang on, we're working six, seven days a week. It's like, well, no, no one can sustain that mental performance. But yet no one actually looks at it from that side of it. They're like, well, we'll just, you know, they can have a break at the end. Yeah, no, if you want optimum performance, get them to work four days, have a long weekend. Like during tax season, yes, don't get them to work 16 hour days. They're not going to be as effective. Four-day work week. Shout out to Tim Ferriss. That's yeah. A, that's a book that's four still hour. popular. No, it's four. four his hour. is four hours. Oh, yeah. <laughs> four yeah, hours. Yeah, four hours, yeah. dog. Yeah. yeah. He took we, it a long way further. Nope. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what I would do if I didn't work. Yeah, yeah if it wasn't. I like, do the rest of the time. I could, yeah, I could spend maybe four hours a day. That's a good book behind you, Mindset. Carol Dwick. My uh, wife is reading that. Do you have any book recommendations? I read a book every fortnight. So my book goal is 26 books Fortnite a year. is two weeks? Two weeks, yeah, sorry. Yeah, so every two weeks I aim to read a book. So wow. I've got and heaps. I mean, one of the ones behind me is the Phil Knight, the Nike story. Um, you know, I want to I want to read that. That one, I think you may have mentioned that on our last call. Yeah, so that- the other one up here is The Ride of a Lifetime, which is the CEO of Disney. That was... That was a real interesting. Ooh, those are two good ones, yeah, right? A lifetime. Real interesting right. one. But yeah, I read a lot. I consume a lot. Like I probably listen to 10, 15 podcasts a week. I love podcasts. I, you know, I love that. I, I read. I have that book goal. Do you track the books that you read? Are you, are you measuring that? Yep. Yeah. My EA, cool. basically, when I start it, when I finish it, how long it's taken, what it is, so I can go back four years now and see all the books. I also watch a lot of, well, I call them documentaries, like there was one on Netflix. Oh, no, sorry, it was on Apple, We Crashed, which is the WeWork story. That um, was a great one, yeah. That was interesting. I'm watching the one on Uber now, which is on Paramount Plus, the story of Uber, which is... Yeah, was, I haven't seen that yet. Yeah, I just finished the seventh one. It was the seventh, it's a series. Interesting, like, but it just stimulates, like WeWork and Uber, the two CEOs of that were like next level crazy. But it is, <laughs> they didn't do what they did, not being like that. Yeah, so think, the next level yeah. crazy, but there's no different than Steve Jobs. No. You know, no. And, and people like, you know, they, they create their own force field reality mm-hmm. around themselves. They have the strong will to make what they vision and see happen. I think 
I think that's the difference with the younger generations coming through is a lot more of them are job hoppers. They one to two years max in a job and they're moving. I don't think that they, I think what's been lost is that Tim Ferriss might be part of the reason, you know, the four hour work week, like you can't build great things by not doing the work. Like one of my yeah. mantras is I outwork all of our competitors. I do a lot more than they do in hours and effort in everything, which is why we outgrow them. There's other, if you don't want that, that's cool. You don't have to, but if you want to get somewhere, you need to do the work. I mean, your podcasts and everything you do, everyone sees the, the episode published. Oh, trust me. They don't see the everything amount behind of work. It. The amount of work, it's so much work. But that's um, why you, you, yeah. you built what you're building and that's your brand is like so known. And I think, but you do the work and it's, it's the work when no one's looking and that's 99% yeah. of what everyone's work is when it's, I had a mate of mine that just exited out of a, out of a business after 20 years software. He, he did really well, but he was like, I was an overnight success after 20 years. <laughs> it was only when he sold that he got to actually, people was like, oh, actually, is that what you've been doing? Well, that's what James said too. James has been known to say that in our, uh, James Ashford, we mm. had him on. He was talking about how that happened with him when he sold to Sage, like all of the work that he put in, some people just, nobody sees that it's elusive too. Yeah. But I mean, that's how it's almost like that's the uh, ego is the enemy. Anything that is satisfying the ego. And that's so hard to do for most people, especially people that have aspirations for power or for, you know, leadership, you know, they feed into all that. So that's a, that's one book that I'm going to go back to. I think it's, yeah, it's the flip side though, because there's so much talk about the hustle and, you know, getting ahead and doing that. But then there's also, you know, it's overworking to a degree. So it's, it's that balancing act of following your passion and doing the work to be successful. But, you know, I think the hustle became more of a lingo and a, a thing spoken about. I think Gary V, you know, yeah, love him or hate him, you know, he's, got you know, that's funny. You mentioned his name. I have his name on my list of people to reach out to because his name keeps coming up and I don't even know who it is. He's, um. Cool story. And he's very authentic. He's very genuine. He's, but he's all about the hustle. He's very much as well about building, you know, empires and he wants to own the New York Jets. And, you know, the only reason I know that is because he talks about it all the time and he's out there, but he's doing like, he is like a machine. Like he works like crazy hours. And I think that's the sort of hustle thing where people think, oh, I need to just work for, you know, 16 hours a day. It's like, well, no, it needs to be purposeful. It's not just doing it for the sake of doing it. It's talking too, like it, like uh, there's a, there's a certain aspect of things in motion as you're talking versus action, you know, and I'm sure he has a great balance of that where he does a lot of, he has a lot of action yet he speaks on things and manifests it and eventually it happens. So I don't doubt that he will one day be the owner of the jets because he's manifested that because he made it happen over time. And it's one of those big goals that eventually come to fruition. I mean, it's, I. I, I get that. And that's how a lot of these visionaries are, is they talk about something, but they also have the balance of somebody that can put in the work too. Yeah. A lot of times there's two people at, behind the scenes of every big company or every big thing. And it's always the one that's putting in the work. Definitely. is. I think that's the, the unspoken thing is that this business, and I look at this, my business, my business is well beyond me. My business is now about how can we attract the best talent globally to really grow it. And I think that every business is the same. You know, when I had a five-person accounting firm when we first started right through to now, it's 
the, t- the, the businesses with the best teams ultimately win. The ones with the best mm-hmm. people that can attract, you know, A players as opposed to reserve grade players or C grade players. or That's just the reality that the one with the best talent wins. Mm-hmm. And I think the one that buys into where they're going. And But you've got to focus on being a place that attracts good talent because there's a lot of sporting teams I'll use in Australia. They're known as retirement homes. At the end of your career, you go there, you get a big check and you live on the Gold Coast, for example, but the team sucks. Speaking of, I know, so speaking of, there's a great, great, great show on HBO now too. It's Winning Time. But that one, I think you'd really like it. It's the build of the Laker dynasty. And now we have two Gold Coast teams for us that are dynasties in the making as well. There's the, there's the Golden States. I got so worried. That, that's Nicole's team. Yeah. And then you got the Lakers were still dominant. They're still a force to be reckoned with. But yeah, sorry. That's that. I think we have that too. That was the comparison. But it's, it's a great, I mean, it's just, it's just the rise of the Laker dynasty. It's, uh, you know, the rise of Magic Johnson and, and the, everybody around him. That's just a plug for that. They paid us to say that. <laughs> it's great, though. So what's next for you, Nicholas? It's a good question. I love what I do. I love the game. Well, we're building out an education business, so we've launched that in the Philippines and in Australia. We'll be launching that in America. We're becoming a private college in America. So, so you have a training company... It's focused on accounting and, and bookkeepers and a large, I mean, it's largely was built to train our team in the Philippines to get to that speed to competency quicker. But then we started having clients locally in Australia saying, look, you're a registered training business. We, can you do that with our local team? Why is it only them? So it became a business sort of out of default. Um, I'm seeing a pattern here. Yeah. Solving, solving your own problems and then It is. And I mean, problems. we're looking at like even... Ooh. I said that to Guy on the recent episode with Guy too. Like, well, that's you know, what you did with the outsourcing, right? And yeah, then yeah, other just, people yeah, got it. Was, what are you doing? I, I look, I love what I do. I love the people part of, I suppose, what we do. And that's really where we're looking at, like, how do we just keep augmenting what we do and adding more value to our clients? And that means ultimately more services. So, yeah, love the niche, love the industry. It's, it's very different and quirky in many ways. But um, oh, hell yeah. it's been something I've been part of now for 20 years, so. It's, it's, well, the, the training grounds for that, that's a beautiful thing to graduate to, right? Like you, you like Nicole said, you, right, you solve your problems and now you're solving the world's problems because that's an issue. You were just talking about that at the beginning of the episode, mm-hmm. how not a lot of people are going into this. No. So you can get people where they're at, meet them where they're at is what Nicole says a lot. Yeah. Like you find somebody that's getting ready to start this as a career. They didn't learn any of it their whole life, yet they could be one of the best accountants and yep. pick it up, you know, effortlessly. So, you know, you're going to have to be able to meet them where they're at, train them, train them up. And after about two years, they graduate you and go work somewhere else, right? Yeah. You know, it's, uh, yeah. As part of is your it a two year hiring, term? sorry, yeah. I was going to ask as part of your hiring process, do you have a test that you have applicants do? Because yeah. that's one thing I thought that would be useful is if somebody could build a tool or you could test applicants oh, on like zero or like review these financial it's statements. Called, yeah, it's a New Zealand company actually built technology for that. It's called Account Test. Account Test. Um, yeah, I saw that. I didn't yeah, see yeah. that they were doing software tests, but I no, maybe they don't, you sorry, look they, at their website. They don't do software. They do more accounting, I suppose, 
accounting. More like debits and credits. Yeah, they do a personality test now. Um, I mean, we have built our own training, obviously, just with trying to filter down the talent to get the best. We do fill down. We don't do any software training because traditionally in the Philippines, they haven't used any intro products. They haven't used Zero. None of those, Sage, none of those products are really in the Philippines. But, you know, our average age of our team members are 30, so they're quite tech savvy. So it's quite easy to learn. We have training to teach them how to use it, but not, we don't typically test them. More because of the age demographic we're employing. It's yeah, almost I'm kind a, of assuming they're tech savvy. It's a ticket to the game. Like if you can't use a computer, <laughs> then you're going to struggle to get a job. Yeah, that's, I was just thinking too, like the, the different ways to train people on different platforms, I guess it's different from person to person too. Like from firm to firm, they use things differently almost. So if there was some universal, you know, I don't even know how, how you would test for that actually. It's kind of what I was thinking. But then it And then there's the soft skills new- too, right? The ability to, I don't know, how many of your team members, Nick, are, are actually speaking to, I guess it depends on the firm owner, right? Whether they want the team member to speak directly to the clients or not. Yeah, and it, then, it does vary. It really does. And then, uh, so obviously f- the time difference in the U.S. is opposite. So are your, is your team working night shifts supporting the yeah, U.S. they work companies? U.S. time zone, so they do work night shift, which is, you know, I, when we started doing night shift, I was like, how are we going to get anyone to work on it? Like, and I went there and... Well, not the last visit or it was the last visit I went there on the night shift and I walked around I'm like what drives you to work on the night shift like for my work life balance like how's that work you got young kids and they're like you know well this is the best work life balance because I go home the kids are at school so I go I finish at six I go home the kids are going to school so I get to take them to school then I come home then I sleep and then I wake up and the kids are back from school and then I get to hang out with them and then I go to work at like eight o'clock at night so I can start at night. Like that for me is work-life balance because I'll get more valuable time with my family than if I work for seven to four, I don't see the kids in the morning. I can't take them to school. And by the time I get home, it's five or six at night and they're going to bed. So which one's really work-life balance? And I was like, that's actually got a real point. Like once you adapt to, to working that shift, probably better balance really for your family life. Yeah, I mean, to a degree. I couldn't do it. Is an, time is an illusion. Yeah. I've said this before. Yeah. Time is definitely an illusion. I mean, you got people right now that are working cross, cross borders. But even so, like if you work with somebody in California and somebody's on the East Coast, there's still like not that much overlap anymore. It becomes yeah. a four-hour workday if you try to work within that overlap. I mean, me here, 7.30 for me. What time is it for you? What's nine? What time is it for nine, you right now? Yeah, nine a.m. tomorrow. You're yeah. in the future. I'm in front of you. <laughs> you're in the future. Yeah. yeah, you're in the future. Nicole's from... in the past. <laughs> you know, I'm the only yeah. one in the, the present. West, that's the West Coast. Present in the future. The West Coast. Yeah. When you're working at night, everybody's kind of in charge of what they do, and I think the work from so that will get you like the work from home versus working in an office. You guys still have your locations that people. Do they have to go back there now? Like, are you requiring them to be on site? Yeah, well, I mean, we weren't. The government mandated it. So the return to work order was put in place in the Philippines from the 1st of April that all BPO workers were back in office. 
So, well, they don't have to. You could tell them they could work from home. Yeah, well, under ours, we work in PESA zones or tax incentive zones. So that's where all the BPAs work in those zones. And those zones are, there is no choice. 95% of our workforce has to be in office every day. Otherwise, we get fined. So that's a misrepresentation that some people have because not a lot of people know it's forced. A lot of people think that TOA is the one that's making them work there because I've had other... Mm outsourced like discussions where they say, well, some, they allow them to work at home. Toa, they have to work there, but that's yeah. now you're saying that it's a um, it's government. government some of the companies will set up in, in areas where there is no tax incentive, but they also don't necessarily pay taxes. So there are a bunch of people that are working from home. Like I know one outsourcing company, they're not actually a company in the Philippines. They're a company in Australia and they just have contractors. And those contractors can work from home or anything, but they don't pay tax locally in the Philippines. They don't follow any labor laws in the Philippines. They're just contractors. So there's no proper relationship. And in that case, the government don't know about it. They can't right. administer it. But right, right, you know, right, right. I think you can look at it. The, the BPO industry, the outsourcing industry is 20% of the GDP. But if you go in, it's like being in New York City and having no businesses in the office towers. It affects the cafes, it affects the restaurants, it affects the taxis, the Ubers, the buses, like all of the ecosystem that is around it. And that was a large part of the Philippines. They wanted to get their economy moving again, which means mm-hmm. they need everyone back in jobs. There isn't. Well, this is, this is the issue right now. I don't go to an office, so I don't go out much. No. Everything yeah. I do is brought to me. Yep. And I also think yeah. there's, you know, if you look at the health side of it as well, and you can argue for work from home and I mean, it's the end of the day, I think there's going to be work from home fatigue in a couple of years because of people's mental health. I think if you sit in a room oh, hell yeah. by yourself all day, you're going to go crazy. It's, it's like when they put people in isolation in jails, they go crazy for a reason. It's, you know, work from home is probably not going to be that extreme, but it is going to be, how well, do you stimulate people still? You need 3D interactions. This yeah, 2D stuff isn't cut. And if I like to see people in person, it's a different it's that's what it means to be human, right? To be around other people. And, that's, and I never heard anybody call it like a prison. I like yeah. the way you put it there. Look, I think, um, you know, isolation. some people love the work from home and, and it does have that flexibility. I think what people want is flexibility. They want the ability to potentially not have to work in one environment all the time. Some people want to travel and work wherever. So I think it's more around that flexibility. I think that the term, it's either at the moment, there's the hard wall for work from home or in office. And you sort of have to pick a side. And I don't think it is. I think it's about what is the flexibility that you need in your role? Like there's a bunch of people that work for us that, you know, and we attract people that love working in office, but there's a bunch that do work hybrid. And for them, it's just having that flexibility that on those few days, they can have that because they can drop the kids off and pick them up. Does the government allow that? Not so much in the Philippines. That's more here, to be honest. Yeah, it's... It's good and bad. Like the return to work, it was harder being remote for us in the business that we do. So the government saying everyone back in the office in a week well, for us was a yeah. lot of work, but it was also we can get back to being what we were. So our theme this quarter, we run on quarterly themes, is back to the future because it was back to how we used to be. And then it was that human connection. And first few days, people coming back in, they're like, back to the future. That was great. <laughs> um, I love how we got there. Yeah, but. <laughs> because you're in the future. <laughs> yeah, but that's the. the 
But the funny thing is that the first few days, people are like, oh, I don't like this. I'm, you know, traveling, I'm doing all this. But then they get back into it and they see that human side and they're like, oh, I missed this. I really missed this, you know, this connectivity and being around people and, you know, after work going and hanging out again, it's, it's, I think. I'll bet you that my employees start to say that, but I'm going to give them a little while to say it again. But now my whole team is local. Now I don't even have people that are remote. We're just all working remotely. Yeah. Um, I think it'll be a combination. I think it'll be, I guess I, you know, more, we say more in than out. You've got to be in the office more in than out, um, which means three and two. And that gives people a, a good enough plan. They get a hit of being around. I think the reality is we have significantly seen, like we had our South African team over in Australia. We had all of our global leaders last week in our Australian office for our quarterly planning. And the South African team said to me, they're like, one of our leaders said, look, I've got more this week by being around the environment and the people here, like more knowledge than I did in the last 12 months working for you guys. Like you just, he goes, I love working from home, but I need this hit. And we're like, all right, well, how do we give people that are remote that hit, whether that be every quarter or every six weeks, or how do you give them that? Because people work together so well. Like when, like if we're all in a room doing this, we're probably vibing a little bit different to how we are now. Still cool, but I think you just have that natural human connection. And I think that's the part is how do you blend both so that you maximize the productivity and effectiveness? Nick, have you solved that problem of remote workers trying to get a hit or trying to get that collaboration where they're learning? We're not, so re- yeah, we're not really a remote workforce. It's more our international workforce trying to get them together. So, you know, for the South African teams and the international teams, we're just going to try and pull everyone together every quarter for the leadership team to get them in person. But we are an office first business. We're not apologetic about it. That's just our, our business model. And, you know, we attract people that thrive in that environment as opposed to, to repel from it. So it's, I can't really comment because it's not really our thing. Well, your teams outside of the Philippines, are they mostly sales teams? Sales, account management, people experience, technology. Account management is, is sales. Yeah, pretty much. Right. Yeah. Our tech team are all outside, so they're all based outside. A lot of them are outside the Philippines. Our leadership team, yeah, it's mainly our support services. Sure. So recruiters. So that means it's people that are looking to feel like us, because that's a lot of our clients from overseas. They create these U.S. arms, and we handle the U.S. part of the business. Mm. So anybody they hire Mm. is usually sales first. It's always going to be sales, outreach, and support. And we handle all of the U.S.-based hiring laws and, and everything else, the U.S. taxes. So that's, that's been a, a bit of a vertical for us, actually, exploring that a little bit more, too. I talk about all these other homegrown verticals, but honestly, that's how we defined ourselves. And it's because it's zero users. Yeah. It's always zero users yeah. from across the pond or somewhere else we get in the some country. Of those too. Mm. Yeah. And because they use zero, they find us and then they want to you know, go deeper that. and certainly help. Mm. That's it. Yeah, Nick, I, I've appreciated your tips today. That's oh, exciting. I love I love conversations with this. I love you know talking to people that are active in the industry and and doing good things. And I love what you guys do. Well, thank you, Nick. We're gonna cue right. the outro music. Enjoy the company. See you, homie. Good to see you, Nick.